Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you. And be turning, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7. We are concluding a series of studies on the Sermon on the Mount that we have been looking at for some time. We skipped a week last week because of Brother Gumpad preaching for us. But we're ready now for the last number six of entering the kingdom. So let's talk about what this sermon is about. This sermon is about the kingdom of God. We know that because Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God. That was mentioned just before the sermon started. And then throughout the sermon, he talks about the kingdom repeatedly. So that's the message of the sermon. It's about the kingdom of God. So what does he say about the kingdom of God? Well, here's the outline. As if Jesus was preaching from this outline, this seems to be the flow of thought in the Sermon on the Mount. He focuses on the citizens of the kingdom first. We'll say more about that in a moment. And then he turns secondly to talk about the righteousness of the kingdom. And then he turns, and this is where we are for our study today, the exhortation to enter the kingdom. We might call this the invitation section. As we often do toward the end of our sermons most of the time, as we make a plea for people to enter the kingdom of God or make their lives right. Jesus is doing that. Here's the kingdom of God. Here's the kind of people that are in it. Here's what it's like. Here's what it involves. And I urge you to be a part of this kingdom. That's what he's doing. The invitation section. Here's what we've seen so far. Let's, for the last time, review where we've been. He started on the note of the citizens of the kingdom. Here's the kind of people that make up the kingdom of God. We'll say more about that in a moment. Then here's the influence that they have on the world. They're like light and they're like salt. <clears throat> Having done that, he talks about the righteousness of the kingdom. It's not in disarray with the Old Testament. In fact, it fulfills the Old Testament. It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he begins in chapter 6 saying that the kingdom of God has everything to do with your relationship to God. It involves sincere devotion to God, whether you're talking about benevolence, are you talking about worship or self-denial? Sincere devotion to God. But furthermore, he says that in the kingdom of God, it has to do with your relationship to God. It means you put your full trust and your confidence in God and not in material things. And don't worry about things. Then he says the kingdom of God has everything to do with our relationship to man. Don't judge others hypocritically. That's part of being in the kingdom. Be gracious to others as God is to you. Don't force the gospel on those that don't want it. That's part of the kingdom of God. And treat others the way you want to be treated. And having said that, he's now ready to talk about entering the kingdom. Beginning at verse 13. What's his point? His point is to make a plea to enter the kingdom of God. Having described the kingdom, he challenges them, you want to be a part of this kingdom. And may I suggest that this section ought to be a challenge to you. If, if you're not in the kingdom of God, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, if you've not been baptized into Christ, this section is a plea to you to be in this kingdom that he talks about. Or maybe you've, you're wavered and you're not living according to the kingdom. This is the opportunity to respond to the invitation and say, I want to get my life right in the kingdom of God like Jesus talks about. Three things we're going to see here. Verses 13 and 14, enter the narrow gate that leads to life. I've told you about the kingdom. You need to get in it. Enter the narrow gate that leads to life. Secondly, beginning at verse 15, don't let false prophets turn you aside. And then thirdly, only the obedient are going to get in the kingdom. That's the only ones that are going to be there. 
And that carries us through verse 27. And that's not the end of the chapter, though. We have a reaction to the sermon that we'll close with here in just a moment in 28 and 29. Let's talk about enter the narrow gate that leads to life. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Those are very familiar verses. But there's a lot packed in those two verses. And let's see what we see about entering the narrow gate that leads to life. First of all, Jesus mentions there are two gates. The gate is the beginning of the way. Not the full way, but it's the beginning of the way. So let's look again at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. Now notice in verse 14, but narrow is the gate. He mentions two gates. First of all, he says there is a wider gate that allows it. many people go through it as want to go through that and they can take all the baggage they want. You ever want to go somewhere and, and you want to enter a place and you, you want to take as much as you can with you and you need a wide path to go so you can carry all the people you want with you and you can carry all the baggage you want with you. If you want to go that direction, this is a wide gate that you can get through and you can carry all the baggage you want. You can carry all the people you want. You can carry anything you want to carry with you and go down this path because it's a wide gate. But there's another gate, and it's a narrow gate that only admits one at a time like a turnstile. You can't carry someone with you. They're going to have to enter on their own. In other words, you can't drag somebody through this gate. I want you to go to the kingdom with me. You can't force them in. It's a narrow gate. Not just anyone can enter this gate. Anyone can go through the wide gate. Not just anyone can enter the narrow gate. Let's go back to chapter 5, verses 1 to 12 in the Beatitudes, at least in your thoughts if you don't want to turn there. But in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12 in the Beatitudes, not just anyone's going to enter the kingdom. You remember how Jesus talked about the kind of people that enter the kingdom, chapter 5? What did he say? Well, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their abject poverty before God. Not everyone recognizes that. Blessed are those that mourn, those who mourn for their sin. Not everyone mourns for their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, verse 6. Blessed are the meek, those who are disciplined. Not everyone submits themselves to the will of God, and not everyone wants to be right with God. So Matthew 5 said, this is the kind of person that enters the kingdom. Only a few are going to be there. You put that in contrast to the common idea that you just believe on the Lord or maybe even broader than that, everyone's going to heaven. How many times have you hearing some, some movie star that, that is ungodly or some, some uh, celebrity that is ungodly and they die and they get on the news and the people, their friends talk about, they're in a better place now, they're all going to heaven. Not according to Jesus. There's two gates. That's the beginning of the way. But here's something else I learned from verses 13 and 14. There are two ways. This is the progress of the way. Not only is there a wide gate and an arrow gate, there are two ways to which those gates lead. Let's go back to verse 13. Enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way. There are two ways, two progress. There is this broad way where there is room to do as you please. If you want to live like you want, do as you please. You don't want restrictions. This is the course for you. 
Jesus said, there's a road you can get on. If that's what you want to do and that's how you want to live, do as you please. There's a road just for you. Get in that lane. But there's another way that is confined. In other words, confining, it's narrow. The idea of, in our text in Matthew chapter 7, uh, if you've left there, go back to Matthew 7. Notice it, verse, verse 14, but narrow is the way. The word literally means to groan. There is some difficulty that's involved in that. It's a confining way. Jesus is making it clear that the road ahead is a demanding one. The broad way is not so demanding. You can do what you want. There is no confining. There are no restrictions. But here is a course in a way that's clear that the road ahead may be a demanding one. Not always easy. At times it may be restricting. There may be times you can't carry some of the people down this course that you want to carry with you. I want my, my relative to go with me, but they may not be willing to go. They won't fit on that way. There's some baggage I want to carry with me. There's some things I do I want to carry with me along this way. And I want to pray. You can't do that. Because it's confining. There may be some groaning takes place. There's two more things. Still at verses 13 and 14. There are two gates. There are two ways. And there are two kinds of travelers. So you have a gate and you have a path. And then you have people that, path, that follow those paths. And there's two different kinds of travelers. There's the many, the multitudes. And notice what our text says, enter by the narrow gate for wide is a gate and broad is a way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it. In other words, most of the world is not in the kingdom and they're lost now and they will be in eternity. A contrast to the point I made a moment ago that when someone dies, it doesn't matter how they live, they went to heaven, someone says. And at the funeral, they're in a better place. They're better off now that they're past. Things are better now because... They're out of this life and they're out of this suffering as if everybody goes to heaven. Most are going to be lost. And so what I'm learning from this is there's only going to be a few that will be saved. And we saw in chapter 5 without turning back there, it's obvious from this kind of people that are listed as the citizens of the kingdom that not many are going to make that. Those who submit to the will of God, those who mourn for their sin, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's the kind of people that enter but there's two other things. There are two destinies mentioned in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said there's two gates. There are two paths. There's two kinds of travelers. But I want to tell you there's two destinations. Let's go back to verse 13. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Verse 14, but narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. There is, first of all, life. And secondly, there's destruction that describes heaven and hell. There are two courses, there's two paths, there's two gates, there's two travelers. And it's going to lead to one place or the other. It's either going to lead to life or to destruction. Which course do you want to be on? There's something else I want us to notice from verse 14, 13 and 14. What Jesus is doing is more than just telling us, just for our knowledge, I want you to know this, there's two gates and two paths and two kinds of travelers and two destinations. But his whole point in 13 and 14 is exhorting in this exhortation to come and be a part of the kingdom. I've been telling you about the kingdom, the kind of people, and what it's like, what it involves. I want you to be in this kingdom. Let's go now back to verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. 
for wide is the gate and broad is the way. That leads to destruction and many go in by it. But because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there's few who find it. Now, what am I learning from that? I need to enter. Here's the exhortation to enter because of the benefits and the result. You enter by this gate, this is where it's going to carry you to life. That's where you want to be. Do you want to go to the way of the world and be destroyed? Or do you want to go the way of the narrow and have eternal life? And secondly, because implied in our text, the tendency of man is to do what's easier. He's saying that this way is going to be constraining and, and there's going to be some groaning. It's narrow. It's con confining. And you may feel confined at times because it's a narrow, it's a difficult way that leads to life though. And because man often wants to do what's easier so I can carry all my baggage with me, then I need to exhort you to enter the kingdom. Have you done that? If we didn't get any further than verse 13 and 14, we could stop and there's the invitation of the Lord to come and be in this kingdom. You hear about the kingdom, you know about the kingdom, you've been taught about the kingdom. Come and be a part of the kingdom. Enter by the narrow gate. Because there is a wide gate that leads to destruction. You need to be in the narrow gate and that difficult way that leads unto life. Here's the second thing though. Jesus says, don't let the false prophets turn you aside. Well, this is interesting because Jesus makes the point, I'm urging you to be a part of this kingdom, but there are going to be those who would influence you away from the kingdom. I think there's a common concept in religion, at least in denominationalism, that all teachers pretty much are good teachers. We all teach the same thing. We're all going to heaven. All our teaching goes in the same direction. We all are taking people to heaven. We just go by different roads. Not according to Jesus. So let's read verses 15 to 20 and see what he says. It's interesting, right in the middle of this invitation, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your, their fruits will you know them. Well, that doesn't sound much like an invitation, at least in modern times. Come and be a part of the kingdom. Now, let me tell you about false prophets. What's that got to do with this? Well, first of all, I want you to know this. Jesus says the false prophets appear to be harmless. Look at verse 15 again. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. If you could picture a wolf that is out to attack you and to kill you, but he changes his outside to look like he is this harmless sheep. And he comes to you in sheep's clothing, but inside he's a ravenous wolf ready to devour. They appear to be harmless. I think perhaps Jesus is implying the false teachers that lead astray is one of the things that makes this way difficult. Because you see, it's easy to follow that large path because you can listen to any teacher and go down that wide path. But you have to listen to the truth to go down the narrow path. And those teachers could lead you astray. That's what makes this difficult. Part of which, at least. The warning is against the kind of person that causes the shallow-minded to wonder, how could smart teachers be wrong? How could that be? 
In other words, I'm impressed with this teacher and I'm impressed with this preacher. I'm impressed with this teaching. How could they be wrong? They're so smart and intelligent. The warning is they appear to be harmless. They appear like they're teaching the truth. But go back to verse 15 now. They're ravenous wolves. He's not saying they're going to danger, endanger you physically. But in a context of spirituality, he's saying they are a danger to your soul and to your spirit. What I'm learning from that is the truth when it's taught saves. Look at Romans 1 and in verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The truth saves us. Jesus said in John 8 verse 32, that should be chapter 8 verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The truth saves but error downs. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Those who follow after error are going to be condemned and be, be downed, the text says. Error downs. So it's an endangerment to the soul. But I want us to focus on verses 16 to 20. He says, you know them by their fruits. How do I know them? In other words, you say, this is, this is a difficult way, Jesus. You're saying I need to enter by the narrow gate and there's a wide gate and teachers could get me over in the wrong gate and in the wrong path. I got that. But how do I know? How do I know? He said, you know them by their fruits. Here's what their fruit includes. First of all, their teaching. That's part of their fruits. That's not all. We'll say more about some things that are involved. But it involves their teaching. Let's go to 1 John, if you will. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. We just came through 1 John not long ago. And so this ought to be familiar ground to us. In 1 John chapter 4, he said, Try the spirits whether they are of God. Put the teachers to the test to see if what they're teaching is the truth. John, how do I know that? Go back to verse 6. You probably have this underlined. We are of God. That is, the apostles are of God. We, he who knows God hears us. If he's telling the truth, he listens to the apostles. He that is not of God does not hear us. He doesn't listen to the apostles. They're not teaching the truth. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John said, here's how you can tell. You go to what the apostles taught and you compare it. And if it agrees with the apostles, it's truth. If it disagrees, it's error. Pretty simple. You know them by their fruits. But that's not all. We can know them by their lives. Quite often, here is a teacher of error who lives ungodly. We won't take the time to develop 2 Peter chapter 2, but 2 Peter 2 not only warned about their teaching, but talked about their immorality, their ungodliness, their impurity. That because they have no respect for the truth of God, they not only teach things that are wrong, they live in disarray to the Word of God. And so as often we can tell by the way they live. Quite often, those who claim to be gospel preachers among brethren and they're teaching some form of error also are practicing things that you begin to look at their lives and they're in disarray with the word of God. But that's not all. We can also tell in the lives of their hearers. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know this passage and you know it well, I'm sure. But in verse 32 he said that if this teaching of error on the resurrection that he's refuting is true, then he said the conclusion would be let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if what these false teachers are teaching you is true, here's your conclusion, there is no resurrection, then let's, let's live life with all the gusto and not worry about it. You're going to tell in the fruits 
of what people are doing at the kind of teaching they're listening to. Look at verse 33. Be not deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. You say, well, that's talking about friends. No, that's talking about false teachers in the context. And you associate with false teachers, that corrupts your good morals. Because they're going to tell you this is okay, and that's okay, and there's no sin involved in this, and you're going to practice that. So how do I know these false teachers by their fruits? Well, their teaching, the way they live, and the lives of their hearers. And what Jesus is saying is that fruit will eventually be born and all disguises be removed and we'll see them for what they really are. So here's how you know. Here's how you tell. Here's how you know what's going on. Don't let the false teachers lead you astray. Don't let that happen. They appear to be harmless. They'll destroy your soul. You'll know them by their fruits. Here's the third thing Jesus talks about beginning at verse 21. This is again his invitation section. And he says, only the obedient are going to enter. So if you've left Matthew chapter 7, let's go back to Matthew chapter 7 beginning at verse 21. And let's read verses 21 to 27 for this third and final section. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then when I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, I will liken them to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. And everyone who hears the sayings of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. Now we're not through with the chapter but we'll stop there for the moment. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying only the obedient are going to enter. He's made a plea to enter by the narrow gate. There are two gates, two ways, two true travelers, two destinations. You make the choice of which one you want. Don't let the false prophets lead you astray. You make sure you're listening to the truth. And now he says in verses 21 to 27, only the obedient are going to enter the kingdom. If you want to be in the kingdom, you have to obey. So what does he say in 21 to 23? Not the religious who are disobedient. He wants to clarify. It's not those just religious who enter the kingdom who don't obey. It's those who obey. Being religious is not enough. It's only those who obey. Now notice at verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they make their claims, God is our ruler, Jesus is our ruler. We follow the word of God. We believe in the Bible and we're trying to follow the Bible and we're trying to do the will of God. They make that claim and yet they're not being obedient. They call on him as Lord, but they don't obey. Now the parallel account of this is quite interesting in Luke chapter 6. You might turn over to Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Makes the same point, but worded just a little bit differently. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? The word Lord means ruler. Why do you call me your ruler? Why do you call me your leader, but you don't let me lead? You call me your ruler, and you don't let me rule. Why do you do that? Not everyone that says Lord, Lord. We saw earlier in the context, some people teach a lie. That's the false prophet. But there's some people who live a lie. That's what verse 21 is talking about. They say, Lord, Lord, the Lord is my ruler. They don't live like that. They're living a lie. They say the Lord is my ruler, but they're living in contrast to that. Now notice at verse 22 and 23, 
This is a picture of a judgment scene. He said, here's what's going to happen. When, when you go down this path, this broad path, and you finally get to the end of the way, and you end it at the day of judgment, here's what's going to happen. This is a judgment scene. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? See, these were not rebels that just, just do anything they want. They're religious. We prophesied in your name. We were making claims. We were prophesying. And we cast out demons in your name. And thirdly, we did wonders in your name. We were doing things that we thought were trying to pray. We were doing things religious. And he said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In other words, they're functioning without law. They didn't have respect for God or for his word. Oh, they were religious, all right. So I just learned something that most of the world hasn't learned. And that is just because someone is religious and dedicated and devoted and makes a claim of being a Christian doesn't mean they enter the kingdom. Doesn't mean they enter into the gates of heaven. But I want you to notice something else. Go back to verse 21. It's only those who obey. Not those who are religious, who disobey, but only those who obey. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Remember the meek back in chapter 5, the kind of people enter the kingdom? That's those who suppress their own will and yield to the will of God. They humbly submit to the will of God. That's what he's talking about here at verse 21. Perhaps a parallel account to this, or a parallel passage to this, not an account, but Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, Christ is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Those who submit to the will of God. Now, he illustrates that with two builders. And so if you've left Matthew chapter 7, turn back to chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. He said, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, I will liken him unto something. What does he say? He said, I'm going to compare those who obey and those who disobey to two kinds of builders. He said, first of all, there's this foolish man that builds upon the sand. Well, who does that represent? That represents the one who hears, but he doesn't obey. He listens to the word. He knows what God wants. He knows the will of God, but he doesn't do the will of God. He doesn't submit himself to it. He's building on the sand. He may be weak. He may be wavering. He may be rebellious. Here's the point I want you to see. It makes no difference who or how he builds sand to sand when he's building on the sand. The one who hears and doesn't obey is building on the sand. That's what Jesus said. But then Jesus goes on to say that the wise man builds on the rock is the one who hears and obeys. He's building on the rock. Now, I want you to go back just for a moment. Let's go back to verse 27, 26 and 27. Verse 25, verse 25 and 27 are parallel, except they're going in reverse order. He said, here's the, the man who built upon the sand. You say, well, I know of people who build on sand, and, and it wasn't a good foundation, and the house is still standing. But notice what happens. There's coming a time when the rains descend and the floods came and the winds will blow, and that that's built on the rock will stand. Verse 27, when you build on the sand, it may be standing now, but the time is coming when the winds will blow and the winds and the storm will come and the floods will come and the winds will beat upon the house and it'll fall and great will be the fall of it. 
I think that's an allusion to the same principle, verse 23, 22 and 23, a picture of the judgment. Now, we're not through. I want us to look at 28 and 29 to finish the chapter. But here's what Jesus just said. Here's his invitation section. He's just been preaching on the kingdom, and he's wrapping his sermon up. And what he's just done is say, enter by the narrow gate that leads to life. There's two gates, two ways, two travelers, two destinies. You need to be in the narrow gate and the narrow way. That's where you need to be. And I'm urging you to be a part of it. Then he says, false prophets will lead you astray. Don't let that happen. It's only those who are obedient that enter the kingdom. Now that's basically the end of his sermon. But what I want you to notice is there was a reaction to the sermon. Sometimes when I go preach a sermon that maybe it's controversial or maybe it's a little different topic and I go somewhere and someone knows of that, they'll say, what kind of reaction did you get? In other words, was it receptive or did they reject it? Did people walk out? What, what's, what, what, what kind of reception did you get? We've said this is the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher ever was. Ever wonder what kind of reaction there was? Well, here's, here's the text. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. They stood amazed. And who's there? I know the disciples are there. But every indication is that there are some, some Pharisees and scribes perhaps out on the peripheries because he seems to preach to them too. But I know the disciples are there. And when he ended these sayings, the people, not just the disciples, were astonished. They're just not like, hmm, pretty good sermon. They're amazed. They're astonished. What's different about this teaching? Because there were many rabbis. Look at verse 29. For he's taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, the scribes had knowledge. Because they copied the law and they knew the law, they could quote the law and they could tell you the law says, and the law says here, and the law says there, and they could tell you what the law said. They may even try to explain to you, here's what it means. Because that's not what Jesus is doing here, particularly in chapter 5. Jesus in chapter 5 says, but I say unto you, this is my law, this is my kingdom. And they are realizing, you know what, he's teaching like one who owns the kingdom, not just one who talks about the kingdom. That was their reaction. Now what's your reaction to the sermon? And by the sermon, I'm not talking about my sermon, not my delivery of this, not my series. But now you've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, what's your reaction to the Sermon on the Mount? Not my, my presentation of it, but what's your reaction to the Sermon on the Mount? It ought to be, I tell you what, that's a wonderful sermon. That is absolutely the best sermon I've ever heard. But greater still, there should be a greater impression of the preacher. Now quite often we hear some preaching and we say, uh, how did he do? Man, he's a great speaker. You're impressed more with the speaker than you are his message. Maybe. And that should never be the case except with this sermon. We would always to be impressed more with the message than we are the speaker. But on this occasion, we should be impressed with the message, but more impressed with the speaker. 
This is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher there ever was. The point at the end of the sermon was you need to be in that kingdom. Are you in the kingdom? Would you enter that kingdom? Jesus says enter by the narrow gate. Are you in that narrow way? Are you headed in that narrow path? Are you headed toward life? Are you headed toward destruction? Are you in that wide gate where you can do what you want, carry who you want and what you want to carry with you? What course are you on? If you're not a Christian, would you become one this morning? Enter by that narrow gate and follow that narrow path that leads into life and enter the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about. If you're subject to the invitation, would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism that you might obtain the remission of sins? And by that same process, you enter the kingdom of God. And you're in the very kingdom Jesus has been talking about. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?